History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the History of Persia. Episode 77, The Yashts. Last time, I reviewed King of the World, The Life of Cyrus the Great by Matt Waters. It's a good book full of interesting information. You should check it out. Last time I did a normal episode, it was to talk about the Greater Persepolis Area, and how Persian cities, or lack thereof, may have worked. This time, we move on with the regular cycle of episodes, like in a caymanid court, getting ready to pack up and head to Persepolis or Babylon for the new year. It's time to talk about ancient Zoroastrianism. Specifically, I'm covering another section of the Avesta today. The Yashts. Anything in Avestan that starts with Yas or Yaz or Yash stems from the word Yaz, meaning to worship or to honor. This is no exception. Yasht is technically Middle Persian adapting an Avestan word, but regardless, it means prayers or acts of worship. Because so much of the Avesta is poetic and rhythmic in order to be chanted, these are also described as hymns. Basically, every religious culture ever has things like this. But since I'm speaking English, I'm guessing that a lot of listeners grew up around or in Protestant Christianity, even if you aren't currently practicing. And that tradition is still the basis for how modern English talks about religion. Most Protestants don't have things like this, or rather, they do and they don't really think about them. Martin Luther had his whole thing about personal interaction with God, so the Protestant idea of prayer is a lot more freeform, let's say. Basically, everyone else ever to praise a god before an altar has a set of prayers in their formal worship service laid out ahead of time. 
The only thing that really sticks around like this in Protestantism is the Lord's Prayer. That's what the Yashts are. They're formal prayers to worship a given Zoroastrian divinity. That includes Ahura Mazda, the seven Amesha Spentas, who represent the core elements of creation, as well as a whole host of other Yazadas, the other divine beings worthy of worship. In essence, all of the acceptable gods. Even though most of the Yashts are grouped together as one collection within the larger Avesta, they are not one continuous work. Yashts are a genre of Zoroastrian prayer, or hymn. They're sometimes poetic, and thematically, they are all centered on a specific divinity or category of divinity. Like the rest of the Avesta, they often use a conversation between Zoroaster and Ahura Mazda, or occasionally one of the other gods, as a framing device. However, they are not purely praising good things about their subjects, nor are they just asking for something. Almost every yasht contains elements of praise and request, but also references to the mythological deeds and stories of either the divinity or a related mortal hero, and how they govern the material world. The key difference between a yasht and any other section of the Avesta addressing a specific divinity is that a yasht will always address the worshippers' relationship to the divine. Academics like to group them together based on those themes into legendary, hymnic, and apotropaic. But they often overlap even if they have one primary focus. Legendary yashts are those that focus on the mythical deeds of the divine and their relationship to mortal heroes. Hymnic yashts are those that focus more heavily on the act of worshipping and praising the virtues and patronage of the subject divinity. Apotropaic yashts are a much looser category that focuses on warding off evil. Usually, apotropaic yashts are much shorter, possibly because they're the ones intended to be recited most frequently by ordinary people. Each individual yasht was probably composed separately, and probably not even at the same time and place, and while many of them are part of the yashts, as in the distinct collection in modern manuscripts of the Avesta, several yashts also appear within the yasna, the traditional liturgy of Zoroastrians' annual worship. It's generally understood that there were many other yashts for other divinities not preserved in the modern corpus, and certainly other yashts dedicated to the divinities who do have one in the modern manuscripts. There are actually two surviving yashts to Sarausha, the Yazada of Conscience, as in, like, Jiminy Cricket. The Bagan yasht, 
was a whole Sassanid collection that was lost in the early Middle Ages. We only now have loose references to it in other later Zoroastrian text. Traditionally, every Yasht is labeled with the Middle Persian name for the divinity it is praising. Usually, that's accurate, though in four or five cases, the divinity in the title is only a small part of the actual hymn that follows. In a few cases, one divinity is named in the title, and another is named in the text, and they never overlap. That leads to debates about how the two were originally associated, if one was historically interchangeable with the other, or if it's something as simple as a scribal error applying the wrong label to a scroll at a key point in time. The yashts embedded in the yasna are sometimes marked as a yasht as a sort of chapter title, or embedded within another section entirely. At least one is split up across three separate chapters, much like the Gothas, and we'll get to that later. Given how varied the yashts are, it may not be surprising that they were composed over a long span of time, too. They are all written in younger Avestan, and thus at least 200 years after Zoroaster himself composed the Gothas, and most of them are probably younger than that. This includes development right into the Achaemenid period, and according to some modern scholars, the formalization of oral traditions and storytelling at the Achaemenid court may have been where many yashts went from a vague genre to a set recitation memorized and repeated akin to the Gothas and other Avestan literature. Still more yashts exhibit similar grammatical airs to the Vendidad, suggesting that they may date to the 4th century BC or later, stitched together from fragments of poorly remembered Avestan, after the younger Avestan language was no longer spoken. On the other hand, some of the oldest yashts, devoted to some of the more obscure or banal yazadas, are thought to have their roots, if not their exact text, in pre-Zoroastrian oral tradition. With this extensive period of development, the actual history of the yashts, with their specific function in the Zoroastrian faith, is mostly post-Achaemenid and something for us to deal with at a later date. That said, as examples of ancient Iranian oral tradition, storytelling, and cosmology, they're very useful no matter which specific period you're looking at, from pre-Zoroastrian right down to the coming of Islam. They are a window into how people around the time of the Achaemenids interacted with their gods, heroes, and ancestors. So most of this episode is actually going to focus on going through and summarizing or explaining the contents of a few choice yashts and exploring ancient Iranian mythology for the first time. At least, you know, the first time on this podcast. The logical place to start seems like it should be the Ormazd Yasht, 
dedicated to Ahura Mazda, and labeled with the great god's Middle Persian name. It is the first official Yasht in the modern Avesta, but it actually falls into that minor category of apotropaic. Instead of anything revelatory or even all that interesting. This is mostly just an invocation of Ahura Mazda's many names and titles meant to be used as a ward against evil. Using the familiar framework of a Q&A between prophet and god, Zoroaster asks Ahura Mazda what words are the most effective wards against evil like the Daivas, and the deity responds by saying, our name, O Spatama Zarathustra, who are the Amesha Spentas, that is the strongest part of the Spentamainu. That is, the most victorious. That is, the most glorious. That is, the most effective. That's probably the most interesting part of the whole Ormazd Yasht because it's an important component in the theological debate about what exactly the Amesha Spentas are. They are always the spiritual embodiments of seven sacred but fairly abstract concepts, like good thought, good spirit, the cosmic order of Asha, and the divine right to rule. In some parts of the Avesta, including the Gothas, these seven spirits act and speak separately from Ahura Mazda, and in practical application at least, some of them were worshipped on the same terms as other gods. However, in other verses, including this one, they are portrayed as somehow a part of Ahura Mazda who speaks for the Amesha Spentas. In this case, Spentamainu, the good spirit, is identified as the most powerful part of the Amesha Spentas, but also as part of Ahura Mazda. The Yasht continues, and Zoroaster asks Ahura Mazda what the god's name is, and rather than elaborating on the semi-independent Amesha Spentas, we get a list of names for Ahura Mazda specifically as the ultimate creator god. These are things like herd-giver, both knowledge itself and the one who has knowledge, the most beneficent, the unconquerable, the creator, and both Ahura and Mazda given separately. There's then some explanation of what Ahura Mazda can provide for his worshippers and another list of names all very similar to the previous list, including some repeats. Then there's a bit of what Ahura Mazda can do for you, and some formulaic wrap-up. The final Yasht, at the opposite end of the modern collection, is dedicated to Vanant, a divinity associated with the Western Star, usually taken to be the star we call Vega, but other options have been proposed. In its entirety, it reads, May Ahura Mazda be rejoiced! We sacrifice unto the star Vanant, made by Mazda, the holy and master of holiness. I will sacrifice unto Vanant, strong, invoked by his own name, 
healing in order to withstand the accursed and most foul Krafstras of the most abominable Ungramainu. I bless the sacrifice and prayer and the strength and vigor of the star Vanant, made by Mazda. Give unto that man brightness and glory, give him the bright, all-happy, blissful abode of the Yazadas. There's a little bit of untranslated Avestan terminology mixed in there. The most foul Krafstras are Daiva-worshipping rulers. In addition to embodying a star, Vanant serves as a protective deity and a guardian against evil. There's also some speculation that Vanant could have been a very late addition to Zoroastrianism, borrowed from either the Elamites or Mesopotamians, where a very similar deity called Vanand filled a similar role. That doesn't have to have happened under the Achaemenids. There's 300 years of Median-Assyrian contact before Cyrus, but given the heavy borrowing of Akkadian gods into the Elamite pantheon and Achaemenid patronage of the Elamite gods, it is entirely plausible that Vanant became a Yazada sometime in the history of the podcast. I'm not actually going to spend too much time on the Yashts that would usually be considered hymnic today. There are six of them, and they would actually all be better for other episodes that I have planned, including a couple that are coming up in the next few months. But the next one I do want to address contains strong legendary and hymnic elements even though it is technically categorized as apotropaic. When I was applying to grad school, in just one visit to a prospective department, my roommate and I kept track of all the languages we had been told we needed to learn to study ancient Persia. The final tally came to 27 relevant languages. As somebody overwhelmed by Greek, Latin, and the need to pick up French and German, that was a bit terrifying. Reading mostly dead languages is different from speaking them, but just picking up a new language in any context is daunting. Fortunately, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. I've had more than a few times where I wished I knew modern Persian. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert in language learning for 30 years and built up a catalog of 25 languages to learn, all available through their lifetime membership, which you can get today for 50% off. Not all of them overlap with that list from grad school, but many do. Hebrew, Persian, Latin, German, and Russian, just to name a few. Rosetta Stone has no English translations, always the part I found most frustrating, and instead focuses on long-term retention through an intuitive process of working up from simple words to full sentences. Don't put off learning that language. 
there's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today, today. This is one of the Yashts that isn't officially a Yasht, since it is actually buried in the midst of the Yasna. The Hom Yasht, dedicated to Haoma, both a divinity unto itself and the sacred intoxicating plant represented by that god. We've discussed the Homa plant a bit before, it was used to induce a mild hallucinogenic or trance-like state in religious rituals from a very early point in Indo-Iranian history. In India, it was used under the name Soma as something of a battle drug to enhance warriors' performance and experience in combat, which may have stuck around in the Iranian tradition until the reforms of Zoroaster since most of the Gothas seem concerned with preaching against the more violent religious practices of his time. It was also used in many similar ways by the early Indic religion, as it was used in early Zoroastrianism. Many plants have been suggested as the potential real Homa, including just about every plant from Iraq to Russia to Bangladesh, with even a mild intoxicating effect. But the most likely candidate remains ephedrine, which is at least supposedly still used as Homa today. The Homyasht, as it is known in Middle Persian, breaks form a little bit. Rather than being framed as a Q&A between Ahura Mazda and Zoroaster, the prophet is actually questioning the Yazada Homa himself. Homa initially appears before Zoroaster in the form of Durausha, a name or title that literally means beautiful man, before quickly revealing himself as the patron deity of the sacred plant. But before getting into any of the actual worship of Hauma, praising his accomplishments or asking for his aid, Zoroaster asks for a history lesson and exposes us to some mythology. Zoroaster asks Hauma, who was the first man in history to venerate Hauma and what were that man's rewards? He then repeats this question down to the fourth person in the mortal world to offer worship and praise to the Yazada. And just as an aside, this will get us into an issue that I've been avoiding for a long time. Middle Persian names. Broadly speaking, with divinities, I've elected to use the Avestan names. When names are available in Greek... I've so far elected to use Greek. This is all mostly in favor of making it easier for listeners to Google based on what I've said. 
But for mythological figures, the early medieval Iranian national epic known as the Shahnameh has immortalized the Middle Persian names of mortal heroes and their foes, though it is technically written in modern Persian. So I'll probably use those much later forms of the names and just reference the Avestan version first for heroes, for those that are keeping score. The influence of the Shahnameh is important for another reason here too, the origins of the human race and mortal kingship under Ahura Mazda's grace are not consistent across Iranian myth and legend. There are actually three different versions that appear across the Avesta, Middle Persian literature, and later retellings, all with minor variations from text to text. As such, if you're most familiar with the Shahnameh, then the genealogy of some major characters in the Avesta may be different from what you're expecting. The first man to offer praise to Hauma in the mortal world was Vivangvant, whose name does not have any Middle Persian parallel, but the character Tamuraz fills the same place in the genealogy of heroes. As a reward for his praise, Haoma blessed Vinvangvant with an incredible son. Maybe a bit of a letdown for the father, but the son was really incredible, because he was Yima, known by his full title Yima the Brilliant, or Yima Kashaita in Avestan. And since a hallmark of Middle Persian is contracting and condensing earlier language, Yima Khashaita became Jamshid, a name best known to us at this point from the local name for Persepolis, Takht e Jamshid, because after the Achaemenid period, folk tradition held that Persepolis had been Jamshid's capital when he was king of the world. This same character has come up in the past because one of his most famous stories was told in the Vendidad. Here in the home Yasht, we are told, In the reign of Yima, there was swift motion, neither cold nor heat, there was neither age nor death, nor envy made by Daiva. Like fifteen-year-old young men, the two walked forth, son and father, in their stature and their form, so long as Yima, son of Vinvangvant, ruled, he of the many herds. But the dramatic story not told here, but rather in the Vendidad, is that Jamshid had to shepherd the chosen humans and animals of the world through a terrible winter that lasted for 40 years, covering the entirety of Earth in ice as a curse from the evil Angramainu, until the waters all ran away. It is a frozen version of the classic deluge myth. The second man to worship Hauma was apparently not Jamshid, but Athvia, also known as Abtin. Much like Vivangvant, Abtin was blessed with a son who would eclipse him as a legendary hero. This son 
was Thrytelna, also known as Feradun in Middle Persian. While the later legend tied to Feradun is part of the story of a folk hero called Kava the Blacksmith, the Avesta contains fewer details and simply explains Feradun's heroism by describing him as he who smote the dragon Dahaka, three-jawed and triple-headed, six-eyed with thousands powers, and of mighty strength a lie demon of the Daivas, evil for our settlements and wicked, whom the evil spirit Angramainu made as the most mighty Drauga against the corporeal world, and for the murder of our settlements and to slay the homes of Asha. The evil dragon Dahaka was preserved in two stories for later generations. In one, the Avestan tale remains largely intact. Dahaka is a dragon that also worships Ahura Mazda and the Yazadas to gain favor for his plan to wipe out humanity, but he is defeated and imprisoned on Mount Derevend by Feridun. In the other, Dahaka is known by the Middle Persian name Zahak, a daiva-worshipping mortal king who sprouts evil serpents from his shoulders and terrorizes mankind after deposing the good king Murdus. With the story of a usurper who brings Drauga into the world by replacing Murdus, it's difficult not to wonder if it may have been influenced by the story of Galmata bringing Druge into the Empire after replacing Bardia, also called Smerdis in Greek. The third man to worship Halma was Trita, literally meaning the third, who was remembered as a healer and apparently incorporated into the character of Feridun in later generations. Once again, the blessings came to the next generation, but this time in the form of not just one, but two great and heroic sons known as Urvakashaya and Karasaspa. Neither has a direct parallel in the Middle Persian tradition. Urvakashaya is just a very minor character in the surviving literature, though his comparison to the likes of Jamshid and Feridun suggests that this wasn't always the case. He is described as a great judge by Halma. Karasaspa became Garshasp, a name used twice in the Shanama. Once, it is to describe a hero fighting alongside Feridun, and the second time is to describe the last semi-divine Pishdadian Shah. However, the story of Kirsaspa told by Haoma is actually closer to the tale of Tamuras, which itself is more directly an adaptation of a different Avestan story about a guy called Takma Urupa. But here's what Haoma has to say. He who smote the horned dragon, swallowing men and swallowing horses, poisonous and green of color, over which as thick as thumbs greenish poison scales flowed aside, on whose back once Kirasaspa cooked his meat in an iron cauldron at the noonday meal, and the deadly scorched upstarted and springing off dragon dashed out of the water as it boiled. 
headlong it fled affrighted from manly-minded Kirasaspa. So we have another dragon slayer, who not only defeated the dragon, but captured it and mounted his scaly enemy. It's unclear whether this is supposed to be Dahaka again or not, but in later legend, the King Garshasp was cast as a hero who would be resurrected in the end times to defeat Dahaka once and for all possibly in an attempt to incorporate the story from the home Yasht into the wider mythology as it developed later on. We are about to transition to a new section of the home Yasht, so two more digressions about these ancient heroes. First of all, I want to point out that these stories of dragon-slaying heroes and the ruler of the world Jamshid are some of the most recurring stories in the Avesta, at least from the section of legendary Yashts that I thought about covering today, these stories appear in all of them. The Ghosh Yast, dedicated to Dravaspa, the goddess of cattle and horses, features several of these stories, wherein Dravaspa aids the heroes rather than Haoma. Likewise, they receive blessings from Vayuvata, god of the good winds, in the Ramyasht. At least as we understand the history of the Yashts, it seems that these were probably the legendary heroes whose stories were prominent in the Achaemenid court. Yima, the great king of the world, and the dragon slayers, Kirasaspa and Thrytauna, were probably the heroes that young Achaemenid princes looked up to, in addition to the more historical likes of Cyrus the Great and Deokes of Media. I also want to note how all of these heroes I've discussed have analogous figures in Vedic and or Hindu religion. Linguistically, all of these ancient Iranian names have cognates in Sanskrit, but the twist is that in Sanskrit, they aren't mortal. Instead, this lineage of Zoroastrian heroes are remembered in the Vedas as the highest rungs of the Devas in the Indic pantheon. They are blood relatives and of similar status to Indra, the god of storms and king of the gods. Some of their names appear as titles in the Vedas. Others seem to share an Indic counterpart. Many of them share similar myths, but with the Indic versions elevated to a more divine tier of storytelling. It's impossible to know what exactly this means about the early relationship between Zoroastrianism and Vedic religion, whether Zoroaster demoted gods to mortals or the Vedas promoted mortals to gods. But it is food for speculation. In a dramatic, if predictable, twist, the fourth man to honor Haoma on Earth is revealed to be Purashaspa Spitama, the father of Zoroaster himself. Thus, like the great heroes of old, Zoroaster was granted to his father as a blessing from Haoma. This is used to transition from recounting legends to a more apotropaic prayer 
in which Zoroaster himself actually calls on Halma, saying, I stake my claim on thee for strength. I stake my claim on thee for victory. I stake my claim on thee for health and healing when healing is needed. I stake my claim on thee for progress and increased prosperity and vigor of the entire frame and for understanding of each adorning kind and for this that I may have free course among our settlements, having power where I will, overwhelming angry malice and becoming a conqueror of lies. Yea, I stake my claim on thee that I may overwhelm the angry hate of haters, of the divas and of mortals, of the sorcerers and temptresses, of the tyrants and the kavis, of the carpons, murderous bipeds, of the sanctity destroyers, the profane apostate bipeds, and of the wolves' four-footed monsters, of the evading host, wide-fronted with stratagems in advance. The prophet, after this series of dramatic demands, where the number of feet that people have is very important, requests six blessings, possibly a sign of humility rather than going with the usual sacred number seven. They were, one, entrance into the house of the song, i.e. heaven, two, for a healthy body, three, for a long life, four, satisfaction and success in his religious campaign, five, to defeat his enemies in battle, and six, forewarning of any potential threats. Overall, pretty reasonable requests for a god known for minting great heroes. We then transition to a more hymnic style, praising Hauma for his own sake with a section that includes the likes of this. Hauma grants to racers who would run a course with span both speed and bottom in their horses. Hauma grants that women come to bed with a child, a brilliant offspring of a righteous line. Hauma grants to those who have long sat searching books more knowledge and more wisdom. Hauma grants to those long maidens who sit home unwed good husbands, and that as soon as asked he Homa the well-minded, lowered Karasani, a diva-worshipping king, dethroned him from his throne, for he grew so fond of power that he treacherously said, No priest behind or watching shall walk the lands for me as a counselor and prosper them, for he would rob everything of progress. He would crush the growth of all. Hail to thee, O Hauma, who hast power as thou wilt, and by thine inborn strength, Hail to thee, thou art well versed in many sayings and true with holy words. Hail to thee, for thou dost ask no wily questions, but questions direct. Fourth, Mazda has borne to thee the starry girdle, the spirit maid, the ancient one, the Mazda Yasni faith. 
Halma is so good, look at all the things he does and continues to do, and how he is honored by Ahura Mazda in the constellation Orion's Starry Girdle. Good times. But even though Zoroastrianism typically disdained the Scythian and Indic use of Halma as a war drug, aspects of Halma's roots as a war god sneak in at the end, possibly as part of a older hymn grafted on to the later, more orthodox parts. At the aroused and fearful dragon, green and belching forth his poison for the righteous saint that perishes, golden Halma, hurl thy mace. At the murderous bludgeon-bearer, committing deeds unheard, bloodthirsty and drunk with fury, golden Halma, hurl thy mace. Against the wicked human tyrant, hurling weapons at the head for the righteous saint that perishes, Golden Halma, hurl thy mace. Against the righteousness disturber, the unholy life destroyer, thoughts and words of our religion well delivering, yet in actions never reaching, for the righteous believer that perishes, Golden Halma, hurl thy mace. Against the body of the harlot with her magic minds overthrowing with intoxicating pleasures to the lusts her person offering, whose mind as vapor wavers as it flies before the wind, for the righteous believer that perishes, Golden Haoma, hurl thy mace. That's where the chapter ends, but more on the whole throwing a mace at a harlot thing later. This chapter, Yasna 9, is just the beginning of the Halma ceremony in the Zoroastrian liturgy. It continues into Yasna 10 and 11, which are sometimes included as part of the Halm Yasht. Based on style and intent, I think it's much more plausible that they are two additional but separate Halm Yashts of their own. Yasna 10 is very expressly hymnic in style, describing Haoma and its importance. It ranges from the metaphysical, Haoma grows while he is praised, and the man who praises him is therewith more victorious. The lightest pressure of thee, Haoma, thy feeblest praise, the slightest tasting of thy juice avails to the thousand smiting of the divas. Wasting does vanish from that house, and with foulness withers in verity, they bear thee. And where thy praise is sung in truth, the drink of Halma, famed and health-bringing as thou art. Or, to simply descriptive. And taught by implanted instinct on every side, the bounteous birds have carried thee to the peaks above the eagles, to the mountain's extremest summit, to the gorges and abysses, to the heights of many pathways, to the snow peaks ever widened. There, Halma ranges, dost thou grow of many kinds. Now thou growest of milky whiteness, and now thou growest golden and forth thine healing liquors flow for the inspiring of the pious. 
So terrify away from me the aim of death's cursor. So terrify and crush his thought, who stands as my maligner. You get a sense for both Helma's religious benefits and how to procure it. Yasna 11 opens as if Zoroaster himself is speaking, beseeching Halma for blessings in an apotropaic style. But it is very similar to what we saw earlier in Yasna 9, so I'll point to the closing section instead. To thee, O holy Halma, bearer of ritual sanctity, I offer this my person, which is seen by all to be mature and fit for gift. To Halma, the effective, do I offer it, and to the sacred exhilaration for which he bestows, and do thou grant to me for this, O holy Halma, thou hast driven death afar. The house of songs, the best world of the true believers, shining and all brilliant. Once again, Hauma is a divinity with a very obvious and even accessible physical manifestation that was thought to grant distinct and immediate benefits, both material and spiritual. Finally, I want to wrap up with a pair of yashts that fall back into the apotropaic category, but both have particular significance as a connection back to Achaemenid history. First, we have the Ma-Yasht, in praise of the god of the moon. Though his Avestan name was technically Maonga, I'm going to break my usual mold here because the moon was already called Maha in Old Persian, and Ma is particularly interesting in the Achaemenid period anyway. Large chunks of the Ma-Yasht are actually formulaic prayers and mathras repeated in other contexts, but I'll read the whole unique section since it is relatively short. Hail to Ahura Mazda, hail to the Amesha Spentas, hail to Ma that keeps in it the seed of the bull. Hail to thee, we look to thee. Hail to thee when thou lookest at us. How does the moon wax? How does the moon wane? For fifteen days does the moon wax. For fifteen days does the moon wane. As long as his waxing, so long is the waning. As long as his waning, so long is the waxing. Who is there but thee who makes the moon wax and wane? We sacrifice unto Ma who keeps in it the seed of the bull, the holy and master of holiness. Here I look at the moon, here I perceive the moon. Here I look at the light of the moon, here I perceive the light of the moon. The Amesha Spentas stand up, holding its glory. The Amesha Spentas stand up, pouring its glory upon the earth made by Mazda. And when the light of the moon waxes warmer, golden-hued Halma plants grow on from the earth during spring. We sacrifice unto the new moons, the full moons, and the following week. We sacrifice unto the new moon, 
the holy and master of holiness. We sacrifice unto the full moon, the holy and master of holiness. We sacrifice unto the following week, the holy and master of holiness. I will sacrifice unto Ma that keeps in it the seed of the bowl, the liberating, bright, glorious, water-giving, warmth-giving, wisdom-giving, wealth-giving, riches-giving, thoughtfulness-giving, wheel-giving, freshness-giving, prosperity-giving, the liberating, and the healing. For its brightness and glory I will offer unto it a sacrifice worth being heard, namely unto Ma that keeps in it the seed of the bull. Unto Ma that keeps in it the seed of the bowl, we offer up the libations, the halma, and meat, the barsam, the wisdom of the tongue, the holy hymns, the speech, the deeds, the libations, and the words of Asha. Part of this yasht ties into an aspect of the collection we haven't talked about today. The traditional Zoroastrian calendar follows a sequence of days named for different yazadas, and the corresponding yashts are often repeated on those days. As a result, some of the more astrological divinities also get calendar notes in their prayers, like the phases of the moon. I'll talk more about this in a more dedicated episode about the calendar some other time. We've got a lot more kings to transition through in the next thousand-ish years. And frankly, I'm running out of Avesta already. The moon, and by extension its personified divinity Ma, was seen as the guardian of the seed of the bull which sounds like it should be a sex thing, but isn't. Probably. The original Avestan version of the story is lost, but the 9th century CE Zoroastrian text called the Bundahishan contains a brief summary, and the same story is at least referenced in the Vendidad. Jahi was a divinity in the primordial universe tempted and corrupted by Angramainu into becoming a temptress, often known just by the epithet the whore. She is the being identified as a harlot defeated by Haoma in the home Yasht. Her corruption came when Angramainu tempted her into killing the Gavai Vodada, the primordial that is seen as the progenitor of all animal life. Jahi did the deed and became a diva, but Ma swooped down and rescued the kir of the bull. This is the word translated as seed. It holds the prototype or essence of animal life and allowed life to continue even after the death of Gavai Vodada. Meanwhile, for those that follow along best with biblical comparisons, Jahi took on all of the worst things associated with both Lilith and Eve, including causing menstruation. Ma is also a guardian. Ma's light reveals sacred Halma, pours divine glory onto the earth, and gives his worshippers everything from personal freedom to water, 
to warmth, to material comfort, and spiritual guidance. In the original context, these are aspects of the Yazada that stem from the belief that night is a curse from Angramainu. The moon cuts through the darkness and combats that curse. But this is the aspect of Ma that is most important to the Achaemenid period, too. According to Herodotus, the moon was the patron deity of Persians living in Anatolia. Many of the blessings associated with Ma would also have been seen as blessings for strangers living in a strange and godless land who could still look up to the sky, even during the accursed night, and see a protector. But of course, if there is a hymn to the moon, there is also a hymn to the sun. The Khorshedya is dedicated to Hevare Khashaita, literally meaning the radiant sun. Hevare Khashaita follows the well-worn mold of the Indo-European solar deity from almost every pantheon. If you're familiar with any of that mythology, you'll notice similarities. Once again, it's pretty short, and you'll see some obviously intentional parallels to the Mayasht as well, but there is a twist. <clears throat> we sacrifice unto the undying, shining, swift-horsed Hivare. When the light of the sun waxes warmer, when the brightness of the sun waxes warmer, then up stand the heavenly Yazadas, by hundreds and thousands, they gather together in its glory. They make its glory pass down. They pour its glory upon the earth made by Ahura for the increase of the world's holiness, for the increase of the creatures of holiness, and for the increase of the undying, shining, swift-horsed Hivare. And when the sun rises up, the earth made by Ahura becomes clean, the running waters become clean, the waters of the wells become clean, the waters of the sea become clean, the standing waters become clean, all the holy creatures, the creatures of Spentaminu, become clean. Should not the sun rise up, then the divas would destroy all the things that are in the seven climes, nor would the heavenly Yazadas find any way of withstanding or repelling them from the material world. He who offers up a sacrifice unto the undying, shining, swift-horsed Hivare, to withstand the darkness, to withstand the divas born of darkness, to withstand the robbers and the bandits, to withstand the Yatus and the Parikas, to withstand the death that creeps in unseen, offers it up to Ahura Mazda, offers it up to the Amesha Spentas, offers up to his own soul. He rejoices all the heavenly and worldly Yazadas who offer up a sacrifice unto the undying, shining, swift-horsed Hivare. I will sacrifice unto Mithra, lord of wide pastures who has a thousand ears and ten thousand eyes. I will sacrifice unto the club of Mithra, lord of wide pastures, well struck down upon the skulls of the divas. 
I will sacrifice unto that friendship, the best of all friendships, that reigns between the moon and the sun. For his brightness and glory, I will offer unto him a sacrifice worth being heard, namely, unto the undying, shining, swift horse Hivare. Unto the undying, shining, swift horse Hivare, we offer up the libations, the halma, and meat, the barsam, the wisdom of the tongue, the holy hymns, the speech, the deeds, the libations, and the words of Asha. The obvious things that jump out are repeated references to the swift horse Hivare, part of the obviously ancient tradition that the sun was a deity riding in a chariot, seen from Indian to Persian to Greek to Roman to Norse mythologies. The other obvious thing is that the protection and blessings offered by the sun are presented as greater and more powerful than his lunar counterpart, but also seem less desperate and relieving. The moon cuts through the night, while the sun keeps it away entirely. Both play their role in the endless war against the Daivas and their servants. But then, right at the end, another divinity entirely appears out of nowhere, and we're suddenly exposed to Mithra, portrayed as an all-seeing, all-hearing guardian of horses, against the Daiva before jumping back to the sun. This is a product of something that was happening during the Achaemenid period, and something that will become increasingly relevant to us in the near future. Much like the Greeks and Romans with their neighbors, the priests of ancient Mesopotamia had a long tradition of trying to identify which foreign gods were actually familiar deities going by another name. There are many tablets from the Middle Bronze Age that are just catalogs listing which Elamite or Sumerian deities go with which Akkadian names, and often it's very clear that they were reaching. The Persians themselves seem to have been content to sponsor the worship of many gods from many backgrounds, even in the middle of Parsa, without mixing and matching names. But that didn't stop their Greek and Babylonian subjects from doing it. Mithra was traditionally the warrior god of contracts, oaths, and promises who guards and defends the afterlife. Apparently, by coincidence, this was a pretty strong archetype in the ancient world. By the Persian period, the Akkadian god Shamash had absorbed his Sumerian equivalent Utu entirely, and had been slowly supplanting the Elamite god Nahunte for centuries. When Mithra appeared on the scene, it only made sense that the people of Mesopotamia would identify him with Shamash. But there's just one catch. All these other deities in the region were also the god of the sun. As Iranian culture blended more and more into the cultures of their immediate neighbors in Elam and Assyria, Mithra increasingly absorbed the sun itself into his sphere of influence. By the end of the Achaemenid period, Hivare Kashaita 
existed mostly as a relic and formality, while Mithra absorbed his place in religious practice and prominence. And that's where we see Mithra making a guest appearance in the Yasht for the Sun. And all of that is relevant because next time we do a religious episode, it will be all about actual Achaemenid religion for once. Because we are on the precipice of gods other than Ahura Mazda showing up in royal inscriptions in what really feels like a dramatic shift in policy. The sun, oaths, warfare, water, and love will blend together. But before that, Let's kill Darius II. Until then, if you want more information about this podcast, go to historyofpersiapodcast.com, where you'll find the Achaemenid family tree, my bibliography, and the support page for the podcast where you can find different ways to financially support this project. That's affiliate links. That's one-time donations. And most importantly, really, that is Patreon. If you click the links on the website or go to patreon.com slash historyofpersia, you can get access to different benefits from a monthly subscription that include things like bonus episodes, ad-free listening, and discounts on History of Persia merch. But of course, you don't have to spend money to support the podcast because the best way to support an independent podcast like this is always the free option of telling other people how much you like the history of Persia. Go on social media, go on iTunes, go on Stitcher, go on whatever platforms do reviews these days, and tell people that you're enjoying the podcast. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram at History of Persia Podcast and on Twitter at Just History of Persia. Until next time, thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.